for me. And I was like, I really should have just shortened it out. So then I sent another one, but I guess, anyways, you get the whole deal. Um, it has been, so I came here to interview, and I think that was in 2008, and I've not been back since then. So, and I'm sure that some of you have interviewed at our program. If I have met you and interviewed you and forgotten you, I am so sorry. <laughs> you a lot of people. But anyways, it's really good to be here. Um, and very timely too, um, I have some connections to Ukraine as well. So it's really neat to be able to um, see that I'm actually a, um, Ukrainian Catholic, uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic, which is um, a long history, which we will not go into, um, but um, that kind of the head of my church is there in Kiev, and, and certainly I've been following along. I have some friends that are seminarians in Lviv, and um, so definitely it's been near and dear to my heart, and I also wish I could go um, I'm glad that people are going and serving um, in that community and, and everything that's going on there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get started, um, and I was asked, I gave a handful of topics to say that I could talk about various things, and this is the one that was um, kind of thrown back at me, and I said I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that, um, and so I have no financial disclosures. Um, some things um, I do want to kind of just uh, mention, we do we do all have our biases, we do have some beliefs about various things, convictions, thoughtful opinions, and ultimately, we, we do all give an account for God for how we practice medicine. And um, so with that said, I um, just want to say, like, sometimes top, like topics like this can bring up a lot of strong feelings in a lot of different directions and strong convictions and strong beliefs. And so I acknowledge that and I respect that um, and just hope that we can all hold that in honor as well as we kind of go through this. Secondly, I uh, do believe we're all co-learners. I uh, always learn something as I'm kind of going through this material and kind of rethinking it in terms of our world today and, and, and where do we go from here in terms of any sort of ethical practice, um, whether that's dealing with um, gender transitioning, whether that's dealing with end of life issues, whether that's beginning of life, how do we how do we actively integrate our faith into this broken world? Um, and the different conclusions on how we do that, um, but um, ultimately we can desire to stand before God someday and to say that we've done our best, um, that we've served well, um, and hopefully be able to, uh, to be able to say the same thing. Um, my views, um, which will probably come across in terms of biases, um, do not represent my uh, academic affiliation or uh, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs or any of the other kind of hats that I wear. So I do put that out there. So um, there's kind of be two parts to this. First of all, I'm going to kind of go through a little bit of the history of contraception, both from a, a kind of a traditional Christian perspective, leading into the modern era, as well as kind of modern history. Um, and then after that, kind of getting into the science. So if you're not interested in the first part, um, the, the scientific part will come about halfway through, and we'll kind of go through the various um, aspects of contraception without regard. We'll talk about some of the inherent challenges that are inherent in this. Um, looking at um, issues of consent as well as the principle of double effect. And then finally looking at some um, issues. Some of you obviously are probably many of you are interested in international missions. And so how do you kind of um, process that in light of mission hospitals and kind of advancing the mission of that hospital um, and meeting the needs of women around the world? First of all, what is medicine? Um, so I'm, I'm in this program um, through uh, Georgetown, uh, the Pellegrino Center. So Edmund Pellegrino was a very... Um, important physician and ethicist um, was very fundamental, I think, in a lot of, um, a lot of the um, ethicists that I've met, both in CMBA and the CMA, have both mentioned um, his name as being someone that was really foundational for the way that they processed what does it mean to, to, to do medicine, to be in medicine. Um, and it's a covenantal encounter, as we all know. It's not a uh, like a contractual transaction. We know that it's not um, a transaction between us and our patients, and that's not what, what we're there for. 
And um, it is a, um, it's a, it's a moral calling, it's a moral activity um, that involves a relationship. Um, we're, we're all familiar, of course, with the Hippocratic tradition and doing no harm and you know, not killing. Um, I just sort of extracted from there kind of a, a quote from um, the Hippocratic Oath, which talks about, I will not you know, give any, any deadly drugs to anybody. I will not make a suggestion to this effect. I will not give a woman an abortive remedy. Sometimes it's translated from abortive pessary. Um, and then it says, in impurity and holiness, I will guard my, my life and my art. Um, Dr. John Patrick is a uh, CMDA physician that was very influential for me. And he um, created something that's called the Hippocratic Registry and has several different various translations of the, of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, it dated anywhere from you know, 300, 350, to you know, maybe even a little bit beyond there. It's a little bit unclear about when it was written. But if you ever get a chance to go to the Hippocratic Registry, it's really interesting to kind of learn more about the Hippocratic Oath and why it was so foundational to medicine. Um, and so those are a couple of uh, principles about what is medicine. And when we think about defining it, we think about preventing and curing disease. Uh, we think about restoring healthy function and um, palliating pain. You can see this in the writings of Hippocrates. You know, he didn't just write, you know, we don't know who wrote the oath, but it, that didn't, that wasn't the only thing that came out of that tradition. There was a whole set of books that came out of that tradition. They really kind of bring out these elements about what medicine is. And it leaves us in a little bit of a, of a conundrum about what do we do with procedures? Is that, is that medicine? Is that not medicine? How do, we, how do we fit those into our context of what medicine is? Um, how do we fit transgender procedures in terms of restoring health in terms of curing disease, preventing disease or palliating pain? Um, where do we fit you know, contraception? I think it's, it's clear from the precept before that we would certainly consider killing to not be part of that tradition. Um, even if it is you know, intended for a good, a good end of suffering, we don't believe that we can, um, kill, that, you know, can kill somebody for it. But what do we do with some of these that, that are not necessarily um, curing an act of disease or restoring um, healthy function anatomy through the natural systems? So these are just some of the questions that some people have brought up about um, what, what we do when, when there are things that don't fit at least squarely within the, the traditional definition of what medicine is. I'm gonna go through a couple of premises. And again, you may disagree with some of these, you may agree with some of these, but um, I think on the whole, we'll probably all come to a, a similar conclusion that our bodies, our sexuality and our reproductive capacity um, are inherently good. Um, albeit they are subject to sin, to disease, to disorder, you know, to the effects of the fall. Um, and that fertility and pregnancy, at least um, in principle, are not diseases, um, that they are in principle functions of a healthy sexual reproductive system. Um, and I remember kind of the first time that I, I really kind of thought about that, I think I was a third year medical student when I first met Dr. Patrick. And um, he challenged me a little bit and he said, are, are you sure that you know, the, the, the ultimate good for women is contraception. Are you, are you sure about that? And, um, and he, he really kind of pushed back on that idea for me. And um, was really, uh, so I kind of had this sort of response to him when he, when he first told me that. And I really had to think through it. Is pregnancy a disease? If so, then what did that imply? And if not, then do we treat it differently? Do we treat it the same? How do we, how do we proceed in medicine in that regard? So those are the first two. Um, I think we would all agree that the proper context, at least in the ideal world, um, for sexual relations would be in the context of marriage, and that um, sexual relations are designed for union and procreation, 
for babies and for bonding. Um, some of us may believe that that needs to be inherently in the same sexual act, not as being separated in time. Um, but at least in principle, um, that, that that would be the reason that God has designed sex and that sex is for marriage. Um, I think that we would all agree that discernment and planning one's family is good um, and having children and discernment in that is, is something to be um, upheld by the couple. And um, I believe that we would all here agree that human life begins at fertilization or at conception, and that human life um, is, even from, from the time the embryo on, is endowed with the measurable dignity and the image of God. Not everyone may agree with all of these, um, but I would put these out here as premises at least to consider um, as we kind of go forward in this talk. So again, part of this is, is going through um, historical understandings of procreation and, and contraception, um, and then we'll get into the science here in a little bit. So scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say about contraception. Um, it does have a, a fair bit to say about marriage and relationships and what the purpose of marriage is. Um, it does um, start off with a command to be fruitful and multiply. Um, marriage and children are seen as great blessings. They obviously entail responsibility. Uh, we know that marriage is a symbol of Christ and his church, um, which would imply love, sacrifice, fruitfulness, um, all of the things that come out of, out of marriage. Um, Paul certainly talked about marriage um, as being a remedy against uh, immorality, um, as well as that there's a time and place for sex and that there's a time to come together and there's a time to, to be apart from each other. Um, and a lot of scriptures, uh, not just in verse one, but a lot of them talk about the importance of the importance of that. Um, the only time that maybe question mark maybe contraception is mentioned is in the sin of Onan. I don't know how to pronounce it, Onan, um, which was where um, a uh, a man died and his wife uh, had to marry, uh, as far as I understand by law, the spouse of that um, or the brother of that man. And that brother did not want to have children on behalf of his dead brother. And so he spilled his seed on the ground. So essentially, um, I assume the withdrawal method. Um, and the, then, you know, that was um, met with uh, uh, anger by God and was punished accordingly. So that's kind of the only time that it was that it was mentioned that certainly Onan is certainly pulled into a lot of the early church and even later church um, uh, conversations. Luther talked about it a lot. So certainly it came out um, as being a uh, forbidding against contraception, but there's certainly, there was other things at play within that story in terms of, of what the context of that story was. It wasn't just about being opposed to children. It was also being about being about opposed to children on behalf of his brother and carrying on the name of his brother. In the early church, um, there was, um, if you read through a lot of the different writings, there's certainly a strong preference for celibacy. You see that also in Paul in, in his writing, um, that he prefers that people be um, single and celibate, as, but you know, marriage is kind of given as this sort of remedy because of the times, because the times are evil. Um, but you also see marriage and sexual relations are intended for the procreation of children. They're not for the satisfaction of lust. Um, a number of the early church fathers like St. Augustine talked about intermittent abstinence within marriage to enhance prayer, to reduce lust. Paul talks about that as well. They kind of expand on that um, and um, emphasize even more strongly that the purpose of sex is for the procreation of children. Um, and that sex that is opposed to that procreation, especially through contraceptive methods, which they do talk about in the early church, um, um, and any sort of abortive, early abortive patients would be contrary to natural law and to God's law. So again, you can disagree with that, but, but there's um, a lot of different documents on that and it, kind of what they wrote. I kind of compiled a, um, a bunch of them if you're ever interested in that. And there's also 
um, I always bring show and tell to every every talk that I do. So I also have a book about that if you're interested that kind of talks about kind of the early church's approach to that. Um, so um, I think St. Cyril of Jerusalem, which he lived in about 350 AD, said it kind of the most um, eloquently and positively, um, let there also be a good cheer who are married and who use their marriage properly, who enter marriage lawfully and not out of wantonness or unbound license, and who recognize periods of continence so that they may give themselves to prayer, and who have embarked upon the matrimonial estate for the procreation of children and not for the sake of money. So all Christians, um, Catholic, Orthodox, um, early Protestant theologians, uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Wesley, and there's a whole list of others um, that you know, different traditions will recognize, um, rejected contraception um, you know, all the way up actually to about 1930. And so in 1908, the bishops of the Church of England of the Anglican Church um, said, our conference re records with alarm the growing practice of artificial restriction of the family, earnestly calls upon all Christian people to discountenance the use of our all artificial means of restriction as demoralizing a character. So proceed along in time, the same conference in 1920, again, Anglican Church of England, we utter an emphatic warning against the use of unnatural means for the avoidance of conception together with the grave dangers, physical, moral, and religious, thereby and against the evils of which such use threatens the human race. So this was in 1930, moving forward another 10 years. This was the first time that any um, Christian congregation of any kind um, sort of loosened this stance. And so it was really revolutionary at the time. And I think it's revolutionary in a way that it's difficult for us in retrospect to even understand, just because we're, we're, we're so used to kind of living in, in a world where this is normalized. Um, and um, so they come up, you know, various resolutions and they vote on them. You know, I think a lot of different church congregations have a similar sort of process. Um, and, and a lot of it um, earlier than this talks about the, just the beauty of marriage. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful document. Um, and further seeing that the primary purpose for which marriage exists is the procreation of children. It believes that this purpose, as well as the paramount importance in married life of deliberate, thoughtful self-control should be the governing considerations in that intercourse. Where there is clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, the method must be decided upon by Christian principles. Doesn't necessarily state what those Christian principles are, but again, it does bring out this beautiful understanding of marriage, much beyond what it's mentioning here about children, but just the importance of coming together, the importance of mutual support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the primary and most obvious method is complete abstinence from intercourse as far as may be necessary and a life of self-discipline and self-control lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenting, where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, which it doesn't necessarily say what that morally sound reasons might be. It doesn't need to elaborate on that. The conference agrees that there are other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. The conference holds its strong condemnation against the use of any methods of conception control from motives of selfishness, luxury, or mere convenience. And um, so this, this again, this, this seems uh, probably not shocking to us, but it was quite shocking at the time. It was immediate response by Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Southern Baptists, and probably many more. These were the ones that I was able to kind of see officially. And I have all, all of their sort of documents as well. If you're ever interested, I can send you a PDF of kind of what the different groups said. Um, birth control is pro properly understood today is an, and involving the contraceptives is the most repugnant of modern aberrations, representing a 20th century renewal of pagan bankruptcy. So that was from Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary, which I think is in St. Louis. Um, Washington Post anonymous article was released, um, I think just the next day after this. So it's clear that they knew this was coming out. 
um, talking about how this uh, committee's report from the Anglican Church was a death knell of marriage as a holy institution, and that the suggestion that the legalized that legalized contraceptives would be careful and restrained uh, is preposterous. So that's what that's what they kind of concluded afterwards. And again, there's other other responses by uh, the other uh, if you're interested in, in learning about that. Um, from the Catholic response, there was also a response um, about eight months later. Um, because things take time in the Catholic world. Um, and uh, in order that the Catholic Church may preserve the chastity of the nuptial any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated from its natural power to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature. And then um, moving forward in time, a number of the different, obviously the different denominations came up with different um, positions that have changed over time to, to essentially think all the and a few others um, that, that may not be considered uh, Nicene Christians, or at least uh, creedal Christians, um, have come to accept uh, contraception as being um, acceptable within their church bodies. Um, in 1968, though, it was expected that the Catholic Church would actually change their position on this, um, and, and um, out came a document called Humana Vitae, which means of human life. Um, and this was... Um, Obviously, again, things take time. So this is kind of the sort of the final response to all of this that was um, coming down the line. And four predictions uh, were made within this document about what would happen with um, sort of unfettered contraception, and that there would be a lower there'd be an increase of fidelity, infidelity, that in general men would have res less respect for their wives and for women, um, that there would be coercive control of governments over fertility and over abortion, and that we would see our bodies as machines over which we have absolute dominion. There were several other things in this document, um, emphasizing again that children are the supreme gift of marriage, responsible parenting, birth spacing, um, birth and holiness and self-control are part of the um, uh, importance of, of and the calling to marriage. Um, again, this unitive and procreative, meaning the bringing together of the two spouses and the procreation of children, um, where sex cannot be separated in time, and that the beauty of God's design in our physical natures is there. Um, it talks about recourse to the infertile period, which you see in some of the early church teachings, not all of them. Some of them don't, don't accept that, but most of, most of the early church fathers do. Um, and call this the married couple um, has a faculty provided the, to them by nature, which is when the woman was, um, when, when she's not able to conceive every month. So part of the month, you know, a woman is fertile and, and, and for the majority of the month, she is not. Um, the call to physicians and scientists um, to research fertility, to support married couples, in family planning, both to achieve and to avoid pregnancy. And some of you may be aware, since you work at Ascension, there's something called the ethical and religious directives, which are the ethical documents that kind of guide um, healthcare practice within Catholic hospitals. I haven't been able to find anything equivalent to that in the Adventist world or Baptist, there's, you know, Baptist hospitals and Wesley, and, and I, I haven't found anything to the same degree that sort of is a sort of a universal, this is the statement um, I think that Baptist hospitals probably are still governed by the Southern Baptist Conference, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. But in any case, um, if you do look at the ethical and religious directives, it does talk about the importance of, you know, having fertility awareness methods available for, for couples um, and not condoning contraception. And that's specifically because of this tradition. Um, so if you're ever curious about that, um, if you do get a chance to read them, I think they're beautiful, um, especially the preambles, not so much the directives. Like the directives are fine. They tell you, you know, you can't, can't do this, you can't do this, you have to have a chaplain in your hospital, you have to have the sacraments, you have to have informed consent, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different things in that, but it, the preambles on each section are actually quite beautiful and very, very deeply Christian that 
um, I think few people of any, of any type of Christian denomination would disagree with. Um, so there was actually some secularists that made me laugh, so, um, just because they're, they're, neither of these two people are exemplars of um, sexual purity. Um, but Sigmund Freud, um, the, it's funny that I'm even talking about him here, but abandonment of the reproductive function is the common feature of all perversions. We actually describe a sexual activity as perverse if it has given up the aim of reproduction and pursues the attainment of pleasure as an aim independent of it. So whatever he's worth. And then um, Mahatma Gandhi, and that was in 1916. Um, Mahatma Gandhi in 1925 said, artificial methods of contraception are like putting a premium on vice. It makes men and women reckless. Nature is re relentless and will have full revenge for any violation of her laws. Moral results can only be produced by moral restraints. I actually really like that line. Moral results can only be produced by moral restraints. All other restraints defeat the very purpose for which they are intended. If artificial methods become the order of the day, nothing but moral degradation can be the result. As it is, man has sufficiently degraded women for his lust. And artificial methods, no matter how well-meaning the advocates may be, will still further degrade her. So I thought that was very, uh, very interesting. Um, if you're interested in learning more about secularists, on the other side of the spectrum, you have Margaret Sanger and some of the others um, who have uh, very different views about contraception. Um, so there were some proposed positive consequences that contraception would have better, would result in better relationships, better sexual intimacy within marriages. Secularists would say that you could test compatibility prior to that. Christians, of course, do not, you know, in general accept that, but they said that it would increase and enhance the, the marital relationship that delayed childbearing would lead to stronger marriages, more financial security, less stress on the couple, um, that healthier women would result because there'd be limited childbearing, so they're not having eight, nine children, so that they're not sort of depleted of all of their you know, nutrients and, and, and strength, et cetera. Um, fewer children per family um, will be more educated, they'll be happier children, they'll be you know, able to advance more in life, that there'll be more gender equality um, because of this, that there will be fewer unwed parents, there'll be fewer pregnancies, fewer abortions, and the control of overpopulation was another, um, um, you know, sort of critical thing that actually came out in the 1960s as, as being a, a key reason that we needed contraception. Um, so again, just for humor, I don't know who this person is, but it, it did make me laugh. Somewhere on this globe, every 10 seconds, there's a woman giving birth to a child and she must be found in the thought. So, order of the day there. Um, no idea. I should before I put them in my slides. But um, on the other hand, you have people that say that there's going to be negative consequences, which we've already gone through, that it's going to be harmful for relationships and marriages. It's going to facilitate sex before marriage, outside of marriage. That's going to lower the marital rate. It's going to contribute to divorce. It's going to increase unwanted pregnancies and single parenthood, ultimately. Um, again, this is a suggestion that sex can be without consequences, will increase sex among minors, among the unmarried. Um, it will sexualize women, increase STIs, prostitution, pornography, et cetera. Um, some people have said that it would, it would contribute to abortion because contraception can fail. Um, some people have said that it will actually contribute to gender inequalities, race um, inequalities, and governmental control, um, that it could have uh, harmful medical side effects that would ultimately lead to a demographic winter. That's kind of been more of a newer proposed negative consequence of contraception. And then some people have said that just in, 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 in principle, the separation of, of union between spouses and procreation paves the way for all sorts of other things, such as same-sex unions, polygamy, IVF, transgender ideologies, et cetera. So you'll see these arguments come up on both sides. 
um, probably throughout your career. Sorry, quick question. What is demographic winter? I will, I will cover that here in just a little bit. Oh, we'll get there. Um, but it basically means um, the fertility rate falling too much as opposed to the overpopulation and we're gonna, we're gonna die because we don't have enough food. Um, so I'm gonna go through some things. Again, here you will see my bias. I think that you have evidence for some of the other things or it's a little bit harder to quantify. Um, but you, um, I ask you just to take this into consideration. I know that there's a lot more data out there that may um, have, you might come to other conclusions on. Um, however, this was some of the data I found to be interesting that the chances of divorce after five years of marriage, depending on the number of premarital sexual partners, um, certainly increases. Um, and you can kind of see that um, uh, you know, increase there, um, especially um, after the 2000s. Um, and that's not surprising, right? So I think that we would all say the more, the more sex people have had with multiple people before marriage, it's going to be harder to maintain that marriage potentially um, after, they, after they do marry and, um, and become faithful to each other um, or struggle with that potentially. Um, this is looking at marriage and divorce. Um, and um, you'll see a, a rise there of divorce a couple of times. I'm not sure why it's the, the divorce rate is in orange. I'm not sure why the divorce rate um, went up right after World War II. I have my suspicions. I didn't go in to check about it, but I would guess that people came back both with venereal disease. That was a very common issue. After, um, after World War II, as well as, um, I think, post-traumatic stress and some of the issues from that probably led to a lot of marriages that were already established when they came back, they probably broke up at that point because of the stresses from that. Um, and, then, um, and then you see that rise in the uh, 1970s because I think it was 1969 that no-fault divorce was legalized, and we'll cover that here in a little bit. And then you see marriages per uh, a thousand um, single people um, consistently dropping over time, which I think we all um, have recognized people are delaying marriage, but they're actually just not marrying at all. And you're just seeing that um, continue to decline over time. Um, we certainly are seeing more children born to unwed uh, parents um, over time, certainly since the 1950s. I think that's um, uh, you know, it, very clear to all of us as we, as we continue. And it, it's, it's not just the poor, but it's, it's a, a, across the board um, that that increase is continuing to go up. This stopped in 2009. I'm sure that there's more census data, but I, I, I think it hasn't maybe been fully released yet because I think that the next one would be coming up here soon, but I'm not sure with COVID when the next set of data will come out. Um, inequity between the number or difference between the number of, of boys and girls. Certainly we see that in some countries, um, not so much in ours, um, but in other countries where uh, contraception and certainly where abortion is, is legalized, you start to see that, and that's gonna start affecting some of the demographics as well. Um, STDs are everywhere. There you go. They're, they're on the rise. They're always on the rise. They're continuing to be on the rise throughout your careers um, and probably be new ones uh, as we go along in time. So more things to treat. Um, abortion rates probably have been falling, um, at least abortions as we recognize them. Um, but initially, of course, you see a, a massive rise in that. And then you see a steady decline in, in part because um, of contraception, uh, probably contributing to that decline of abortion, in part probably because of ultrasound technology getting better. If you see those early ultrasounds, you can't tell, I can't tell what it is. There's a blob there. It is a, it is a blob of tissue. Let me tell you, when they were telling women that, I think, I think that's, that's what they were seeing. So, um, and we certainly don't see that today. And so I think that all of that has contributed to this drop of um, abortion over time. Those are surgical abortions. 
Um, I think that those are primarily, yes, because I think that medical uh, medication abortion really hasn't been as common, certainly uh, probably starting in the 2000s, that's when you start to see that increase with the medication. And now they're about 50%. That's why I was seeing that big decline in the 2000s. It could be that they're just kind of switching over. That is also quite possible that they're switching over to um, medication abortions, which now, of course, you can get um, uh, if, you, if you want to mail order it. You can certainly do that and, and see a physician overseas uh, virtually. Um, and so, and this one I thought was um, interesting just because it shows that about 50% of women are using some form of, of contraception um, in the month of being pregnant seeking an abortion. So it's about 51, 54%, somewhere in the majority are condoms, which of course we know the pill. But there was an increase in, uh, in LARCs. And so I think that's important for you guys to know as well, that the more LARCs you're using, the more failure rate you're going to see, and the more um, women tend to be recognize that they're pregnant, and then they're further along when they get their abortion. Um, so here's kind of the, the side by side. I think it was 1968, this book, The Population Bomb, and it just um, was the order of the day. It was a Stanford um, researcher that said basically everyone's going to die, and we're all going to starve to death unless we really, really increase the contraception. Um, and then on the other hand, more recently, there's been more discussion about the demographic winter and the decline in, in uh, fertility rates that have happened over time. So that has certainly also um, been happening in Japan, um, a lot of countries in Asia, a lot of countries in Europe. We're, we're below per, uh, replacement level here in the U.S. and you can kind of see that here. Uh, this was from, this is UN data from 2015. I wasn't able to find more recent data, um, but um, you can certainly see that the decline, which is primarily contraceptive driven, um, and getting below that 2.1 uh, replacement level um, in, in, a, in a good number of countries. So certainly things are changing. Uh, we're not seeing that same thing in Africa and some, some other areas, but they are rapidly dropping off in terms of their fertility rate in the of countries in Africa. So now part two, so that was the first part. Part two is just gonna be a really quick timeline and then we'll get into the actual science, which is probably the most interesting for all of us. Um, so yes, there were contraceptives in ancient times. Um, obviously everyone would have known about the withdrawal method. There were various types of lambskin condoms in, in different cultures. There were some pessaries that were like kind of astringent of some kind or some sort of vaginal sponges. Um, douching was very, very common and, and recommended. Um, pennyroyal was actually probably abortifacient um, but was thought to be contraceptive at the time. Um, so it was this herb that I think is now extinct because it was used so much, um, but it has been well documented. Um, and uh, there were heavy metals in different cultures. I think in China, they drank mercury and uh, there was lead and there was copper um, was another one. So probably also abortifacient and terrible. Um, they, were, they were there. So microscopy um, uh, allowed people to to some degree visualize the sperm. And there was all sorts of sperm theories about, is this a little man that's in the sperm and does the woman contribute anything or is she just sort of this sort of vessel of blood for the little man to grow in or little <laughs> man I suppose to grow in. Um, so yeah, so you can kind of Google that. It's kind of hard to, 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 to sort of. Interestingly, because I, I find fertility really interesting. If you think about um, 
patterns from uh, from uh, a lot of the, the purification cultures, which was not just Israel. There was a lot of other cultures that did purification rites. So a woman would have to purify herself after her period, which was however many days. And then she has another week, she purifies herself. That's when she's most fertile in, in most cultures. And that's when she would come back together again. So kind of an interesting uh, little aside there that it was sort of, the whole thing was sort of built around, you know, having babies. So cervical cap came out in uh, 1838, um, and those were made out of wax initially. And then the diaphragm came out initially the rubber condoms because they, you know, discovered rubber trees in, I think, West Africa or whatever. Um, latex came out later, um, first spermicidal jelly in, in uh, 1906. Um, American Birth Control League was founded by some friends of Margaret Sanger, um, and she took over in 1921. And so some things also happened in the early 1900s. They actually discovered ovulation and when it happened and that it happened 14 days prior to menses. Um, so before that, there was you know, all sorts of theories, um, some scientific, some not so scientific. Uh, animals, as you know, when are they in, when, when they're in heat, they're bleeding. You know? And so there was thought, well, maybe if a woman is bleeding, maybe, she's, maybe that means that's the time that she's fertile. It's a little bit of lack of clarity, but two different physicians independently discovered ovulation as being 14 days prior to menses. 1921, um, the first birth control clinic in England by Marie Stopes, uh, which um, she did not, she, she was mildly pro-abortion, unlike Margaret Sanger, who was very pro-abortion, but they were both um, eugenicists. Uh, they both believed in eugenics. And Marie Stopes International is the foundation founded in her honor. And uh, that's a the equivalent of Planned Parenthood internationally. There is also a Planned Parenthood International, but just so you know that her name, she was very, very foundational, is why I put her in here. Um, obviously, the eugenics movement was in the US and Germany, as well as the UK and a few other countries, um, and um, had all sorts of problems with that. And there was a lot of talk about the genetically unfit. There was a lot of racism, um, really, really horrible season of for eugenics, um, which thankfully, thankfully uh, we hope and pray uh, continues to disappear in our country. Um, diaphragm was spermicidal jelly was extremely popular in the 1930s. So when the Lambeth document came out, that's what they're prob probably primarily what they were talking about, um, just because it was so popular. So that came out in 1930, followed by the Catholic response, as well as all the other responses. The rhythm method, um, which you may have heard about, was actually 1932. It's not used anymore. So if people talk about the rhythm method, they're not talking about the rhythm method. It's a lot of math. You have to do it for six months. Kind of the longest cycle, the shortest cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, it was it was what they had at the time, um, and it was um, basically trying to figure out a woman's calendar for her own cycles and trying to figure out when she was most likely to be fertile, and then a couple could decide to avoid during that time. And so he was a very devout Catholic who tried to uh, work on this so that there would be an ethical means to space births and to regulate intelligently the number of children. Um, 1942, was, um, the American Birth Control League was reigning Planned Parenthood, 1950s to 60s. There were several ovulation methods of natural family planning, uh, Billings and Creighton, as well as symptothermal. They discovered that your temperature rises in the luteal phase, and they were able to kind of correlate that. The first oral contraceptive was 1960, very, very high estrogen, some problems with it, obviously. Um, the first inert IUD um, also had a whole lot of problems with it, um, but it was 1962. Um, then there was other copper and hormonal IUDs that were uh, started. Um, obviously, this is the, the era of the sexual revolution we love. Um, Griswold versus Connecticut was a Supreme Court case that gave married couples the right to birth control as a right to privacy, which you'll see coming up later um, with, uh, with Roe. Um, but that was a very uh, pivotal case. It was only for married couples. 
um, black activists began to charge Planned Parenthood with genocide. That has not stopped, that continues to this day. The concerns about um, specifically targeting um, certain demographics for both abortion and for contraception. Uh, which we already talked about came out. Then there was a lot of uh, problems with um, the um, various methods that it, uh, contraception that had come out. So the doctor's case against the pill, lots and lots of issues coming out with that. Um, ultimately the formulation changed because feminists were really challenging their formulation in Congress. Um, and so that's what led to a lower estrogen uh, dose uh, as well as some increased safety for contraception. Talked about no-fault divorce. Um, then there was another case that legalized birth control for the non-married um, only a handful of years later. Roe versus Wade legalized abortion based on privacy, which was based on Griswold. Um, again, privacy is not actually in the constitution. Um, it was sort of pieced together from various amendments in the Bill of Rights, but it wasn't actually, that phrase was never was never there. Um, Mifepristone or the abortion pill uh, came out in 1982, initially as a contraceptive, and then it was found to be a patient. Um, and then the first implant was Norplant. Um, <laughs> the first and only injectable still in the market, Tepa Provera. Um, then there was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, which followed Roe v. Wade. Um, abortion is of, of the same character as the decision to use contraception. For two decades, the economic and social development people have organized their intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their place in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. So moving along in time, last, last slide of our timeline, we've got the morning after pill that came out in 1997, which you know now is over the counter. Um, we have um, lots of lawsuits starting to pop up here, 7 million for Depo-Provera because of the osteoporosis risk. Um, so hopefully you guys are all doing informed consent on that with your uh, with uh, people at the risk um, of osteoporosis. Uh, several other natural family planning methods came out. Marquette from Marquette University, Georgetown University put out standards days. Um, Marquette is the um, urinary hormones. If you've ever seen anybody do that, pee on a stick, luteinizing hormone, estradiol uh, byproducts. Um, Norplant uh, was pulled um, after um, a lot of lawsuits. Ella came on the market. That's the other morning after pill. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, and then the second implant, uh, which was Implanon, which is the same as Nexplanon, except for Nexplanon, you can see it under um, x-ray. So it's radio opaque, radio opaque. Um, but it's the same, it's the same formulation. Um, Marina violated the FDA for false advertising, concealing risks. Um, obviously it's still in the market, but um, it had some, some issues from the way that it was approaching things. It apparently was saying like, you will fall in love forever. If you, like that was the way that they were advertising. Like if, and, and they couldn't prove that that would happen. So <laughs> that's literally part of the lawsuit. So <laughs> interesting. <clears throat> and um, so then more and more, you know, obviously there's been dozens of oral contraceptives by this point. I didn't put them all in there because nobody, nobody cares at this point, but there was a lot of lawsuits against those. Um, sure they were still placing that when I was out in Lakin. Um, so uh, that has been since pulled from the market, thankfully. One of the largest, I think, lawsuits um, ever filed. It was this coil that was put up in the in the tubes, um, and women would just have terrible uh, chronic pelvic pain after that. So you may still come across women that have issues, um, and apparently they they migrate, they move, they're really painful. Um, Nuvering um, also had a you know it's still on the market, but it had a lot of uh, settlements. And then you know we have about 50 million U.S. women that are on contraception. We have about 630 uh, thousand abortions per year. Again, it's kind of Questions about whether that data, but it is it seems to be trending down in general. 
um, STIs are certainly at a record-breaking high and will probably continue to be so year after year. So, so now we're going to move on to the science. So hopefully that was at least somewhat interesting to kind of put the framework in for where we are today. So we're going to talk about the fertile cycle really quick um, before we dive into contraception. So um, early follicular phase, it's actually about, you know, 10 weeks. Of course, you have your, your eggs from, you know, the time you're in your mother's womb. Um, you have cohorts of immature follicles that are sort of um, selected for that begin to develop over this 10 weeks. Um, important about that, because when a woman comes off of contraception, it takes her a while, right? Everything, it's not just the endometrial lining that needs to, to pick up, but actually these whole cohorts of uh, follicles actually have to start kind of kicking into gear again. So that can be part of it. Um, FSH recruitment of a, of a dominant graphene follicle, um, and that uh, enters you in from the early follicular phase into the late follicular phase. That's when your estrogen really starts to rise which is produced from, from that, primarily from that dom, uh, dominant follicle. There's other sources of estrogen, but that's the primary source. So estrogen also acts on the cervix. It produces cervical, uh, uh, fertile cervical fluid. And on the endometrium, it enters into the proliferative growth uh, of stromal fibroblasts and some glandular cells as well. Um, LH surge uh, happens. It releases the uh, ovum from the um, dominant graphene follicle. Uh, which then kind of involutes into the corpus luteum, immediately begins producing progesterone and estradiol, which happens actually under the um, LH pulsatility. So, so your, your um, HPO axis is constantly producing LH at different frequencies. So in the, in the luteal phase, the frequency of that kind of determines the progesterone along with the estrogen release. Um, and um, this will continue also by... Um, HCG, which acts also on the corpus luteum to continue that pregnancy if she happens to be pregnant. Um, on the cervix, it produces infertile cervical fluid, uh, which is important in contraception. And um, in the uterus, um, it will um, produce, um, kind of change that endometrial lining into this um, um, decidualization of secretory decidual cells. Uh, there's um, uh, basically preparing it for um, implantation if that were to occur during the, during the luteal phase. So there's a lot of changes there. And this kind of goes over that as well. I think you guys are all fairly familiar with this. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is inhibin. It's also part of this whole um, process, um, but hopefully you're, you're fairly uh, familiar with all of that. And then you can see on there um, for the uterine cycle, the proliferative phase um, and how it sort of changes into that secretory uh, phase, which is priming itself for uh, implantation if it were to occur. So lots of blood vessels, which ultimately is why you end up um, bleeding and uh, having the, the sloughing off of that endometrial lining as well. So old hat, hopefully you guys all know that. Um, so now we're going to go through the fun part, which is conception, again, before we get to contraception. Um, and so an egg, an ova lives about 12, maybe up to 24 hours, but probably not even that long. Um, sperm, um, when they're uh, released, um, we'll, they'll actually, it takes like 30 to 45 minutes. They're found in the fallopian tube that quickly. It, they, they really can move quite quickly, um, as well as the rest will sort of pool in the vagina or in the cervix. Um, but it takes, um, it takes about 10 hours to capacitate, and then they have a limited amount of time from the time of capacitation to the time of um, fertilization. They can live about 72 hours. Um, where they're, where they're fertile. And a total, they can live for about 4.8 days, but they're probably past the point of fertility at that point. So it's really that it's really about three days that sperm are 
fertilizable, I guess. Um, once the zygote, so the egg is released, fertilized, but that zygote, you have no biomarkers. There's no way to know that that has formed. Um, and of course, it bounces along along the fallopian tube through cilia that sort of propel it along. It's to the point of a blastocyst, which is somewhere between 200 and 300 cells. Um, and then implantation, uh, kind of it, it hatches out of that, and then the um, syncytiotrophoblast will implant within the uterine lining if it, if, it, if it gets there at the right timing. So implantation between day six and 12, usually I say it's like seven to eight is what I've seen, but somewhere in between six and 12, you can, you can wait too long. And so that implantation process won't be able to effectively take place. Um, if, if it's sort of delayed in the fallopian tube, and then of course you could get an ectopic or it could just sort of die in the fallopian tube without having access to implant it, if it's not able to implant. Um, and it's the following day or two that serum HCG uh, will start to rise, usually about 24 hours later, you might be able to pick it up. And then the urine three to five days after implantation that you'll be able to see that. Um, this is where the interesting part is. So pre-implantation loss, Originally, some of the data said like 70 to 90% of fertilized eggs die before they reach, which doesn't even make sense when you think that a woman releases one egg a month. And I mean, that would mean that she would have to try for, you know, I don't know, 15 months before she would, you know, have a successful chance of having a baby, you know, so we, and, and we don't see it that long. I mean, so, you know, certainly there's variations in fertility, but um, that was really uh, faulty data. And so um, somebody actually went back and just statistically looked at, and every, every other subsequent study cited this original study that had really, really problematic data. And so you, if you're interested in learning more about that, um, it's probably between on the, on the on the lesser side, it's probably like ten percent, but it said as met the statistical range ten to forty percent pre-implantation. If you look at statistical data, because we can't look at it directly, die before implantation, and this is just in a natural a natural state. Post-implantation losses, at least you're a little bit able. You know, you'll have women that'll say, "I had a faint faint positive pregnancy test." What does that mean? Yeah, you probably did. I mean, HCG comes from somewhere, and it came from an implanted embryo, and this is. This, this is your, you know, lack of pregnancy is, is probably because that embryo died or it was left off or something like that. And then that's what you're seeing. So a little bit easier to, to get that more directly, somewhere between 10 and 25%. Total losses from fertilization to birth, according to this article, somewhere between 40 to 60% statistically, I would say it's probably somewhat less than that, but we do know that a lot of women do miscarry, that know that they miscarry, much less on top of that, another 10 to 20% that never never knew because there was no implantation that took place. So reading this data, it makes me uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable because I'm just like, I believe, and I do, I do believe that life begins at fertilization. Now, not everyone in this room may believe that, but that is, that is what I hold to be true. And for me, the way I interpret this, at least in terms of my faith is, man, this is the fall. Like this is the result of the fall, but not everyone would see it that way. Some people would say, well, this is just the way it's supposed to be, you know, chromosomes are, you know, they come together, they don't come together correctly. And I, and I would see that all as being sort of tied up in our, our fallen state. So do with, do with this information, which is statistical, not direct observation, whatever you will. But I do think it's important to bring up because you will see, you will see that brought up um, when people talk about both contraception as well as abortive patients. 
So kind of moving on, um, I won't be able to talk about everything um, just because for the sake of time, uh, which I know is, is ticking along here, um, but these are some of the ones that I'm gonna try to hit with the exception of vaginal rings and patches, fairly similar to oral contraceptives. So I'm not gonna go into too much detail with that. I'm not gonna talk about copper IUDs today just for the sake of time. But when we look at mechanisms of action, um, I highlighted, so first of all, you've got your anovulation. A lot of them stop ovulation. A lot of them claim to thicken the cervical fluid to stop sperm. Um, a lot of them claim to slow motility of ovum, maybe sperm, but also of the blastocyst. Um, and then uh, endometrium hostility to sperm, maybe, um, as well as implantation of the embryo, probably. Um, and so for the ones that I highlighted in bold, I would say that these are not abortifacient. Sometimes people will use that term. Um, I would say that they're embryocidal. Um, but you can use whatever term. And then in, in the past, con contragestive was also a term that was used for anything that would stop implantation of a blastocyst. Um, I also don't use the term fertilized egg because by the time it's looking at implantation, it's not a fertilized egg, right? Fertilized egg to me is before the sperm and the, and the ova chromosomes have really even come together. So it's still an egg and the sperm is like, you know, working to sort of merge those two in, into a, into a, a deployed cell. Um, and then after that, you've got all these other names for it, you know, um, as it, the zygote, the morula, the blastocyst, et cetera. So, um, so I don't usually use the term fertilized egg, but um, so I'll use the term blastocyst or embryo. Um, so how do we measure ovulation? So that's the first thing that I want to look at. So in practice and in research, um, it's, it's difficult to measure ovulation. You think it would be quite clear. Um, a lot of them will use a threshold progesterone level. So, you know, progesterone rises corpus luteum from the, you know, after the um, egg has been released, then it involutes, it turns into corpus luteum. It seems like that would be one way to, to measure it, and it is, um, with the exception that sometimes women have a, um, an issue with their um, corpus luteum. So they might release an egg, but they don't have the progesterone to follow it. Which again, I think a lot of us do know maybe contributes to some of the early miscarriages um, that happen in pregnancy because they just don't, their corpus luteum, for whatever reason, is not responding to the LH or maybe the LH is responding, you know, pulsatility to, to make it produce enough progesterone to maintain that pregnancy. But that's a very common way that you'll see. The second, which we don't do, is visualization of ovulation and surgery, you know, a laparoscopic approach or something like that. We're never going to do that to women just for the sake of seeing if they've ovulated or not. Um, but you can see it with ultrasound, um, and ultrasound certainly has gotten a lot better than it used to be. A lot of the studies were done with ovulate when uh, ultrasound was not great, but at least they were attempting to do it that way. So a lot of the studies that were specifically looking at ovulation, what is the rate of ovulation, again, were done in the, in the 1980s to 90s. And then most of the more recent stuff is looking at ovulation in light of um, IVF research, which is a little bit different because a woman is taking a lot of other hormones and things like that. But, um, but at least the ultrasound, ultrasonography is better. And then the last one, um, HCG, um, is, is not really a great, I mean, it is a great marker that you did ovulate, but it doesn't, you know, it would miss a lot, right? Because there's a lot of, a lot of ovulations that don't actually get fertilized that don't actually implant. So it's not really, it's not a great, a great marker. So there is something called the Hoogland criteria, um, which has these four parts um, for, um, which you would expect that gets to a certain size, 13 millimeters. Ultrasound documentation that that follicle decreases in size by 50% or more within two to four days, which would indicate uh, ovulation, right? So it, it does actually 
involute, it actually doesn't decrease in size. And then um, estrogen in the follicular phase being above a certain level, and then progesterone being above a certain level. And all four criteria are usually used to indicate ovulation, which does make sense. That would ind indicate a healthy ovulation. However, there are some other things. There's a glutenized unruptured follicle, um, which I think are fairly common, maybe even with your like PCOS patients. They're not actually having healthy ovulations, but they have all of these follicles that are sometimes producing progesterone and sometimes producing estrogen and androgens. And, you know, they're kind of um, a different state there. Um, so those are called LEFs. Um, and um, the, the only difference being you have all of these things, but you don't actually have evidence of a, of a follicular rupture. So it just, the egg sort of disintegrates within that follicle. Um, and this actually occurs in about 10% of natural cycles. So again, when you're, when you're thinking about infertility and like helping a woman with that, she could be having this. She could also be um, a um, luteal phase deficiency, which we already talked about. So she does ovulate. She's got a dominant follicle, usually ruptures, but there's in inadequate progesterone produced from the corpus luteum afterwards. So that would be a follicle-like structure. You think it's possible she ruptured, it's possible she didn't, um, and, um, but that in inadequate progesterone is there. And that occurs in about 8% of natural cycles. So again, another, another reason that some women will struggle to achieve pregnancy. Talking about oral contraceptives, um, you all know that it has um, uh, estrogen in it, it has a progestin in it. They're, these are the ones that are, I think are currently on the market. There may be other progestins that are in combined uh, oral contraceptives, but these are the main ones that are out there. And of course, you've got various monophasic, biphasic, triphasic, continuous. Um, and the estrogen is primarily what acts on the HPO axis, and um, it is dose dependent. So the lower dose you go, the less likely it is to stop ovulation. Um, and probably most of you guys are familiar with that. Um, but, and progestins do act on the HPO axis, but to a lesser degree, and they have to be a lot more um, specific with timing, particularly the progesterone only pill. Um, you know, even if you're off by just a couple of hours, that can kind of throw off and, um, the efficacy of that, of that method. And, um, but progestins primarily work to thicken the cervical fluid, the slow uh, fallopian tube motility, and endometrial atrophy. So that's kind of their, they, they act more in that direction. Again, they do have an HPO access component, but it's, it's to some degree less uh, than, than these others, unless it's very high dose, like, a, like the depot or an implant. So, but again, back to oral contraceptives. Um, so this is, I just kind of pulled some of the information directly from package inserts, right? So um, all of them, Sprintech was the one I pulled, but all of them basically have this blanket statement. They did, they're, not, they're not different from one to the other. Uh, they all lower the risk of pregnancy by primarily suppressing ovulation, other possible methods, and methods include the cervical mucus, inhibiting sperm penetration, and endometrial changes that reduce the likelihood of implantation. They all say that. The progestin-only pill, um, I found this to be interesting. This is from um, like PubMed Chem um, that talks about specifically the chemistry of it, although the exact mechanism of action is unknown for um, progestin-only contraceptives. Um, when it's administered in the usual doses, it appears to act principally by altering the cervical fluid that uh, inhibits sperm migration, um, progesterone changes to the endometrium, which inhibit implantation of the fertilized ovum. Again, it's not a fertilized ovum, it's blastocyst, but whatever. Um, in addition, continuous administration of low doses uh, alters the rate of, of ovum transport by changing motility and secretion in fallopian tubes. And, um, and I would also argue, and I will a little bit, not just the ovum, but also the um, so it's not just the ovum that only there for just a short period of time, 
majority of that transit is as a embryo or blastocyst or whatever you want to call it at that point. Um, um, and then norethindrome nor prevents pregnancy even in the absence of, or even in the presence of ovulation. So let's look at some of these studies. Um, this is one that I found to be fairly recent. Um, and um, in, in terms of kind of going back over a literature review, it seems, you know, 2008, maybe not the most recent, but, but it pulls from a lot of the different early studies. Combined oral contraceptives, ovulation rate 1.1 to 4.6, kind of depending again on that estrogen dose and progestin only um, is 42.6%. So women on progestin only pills are much more likely to um, ovulate on those. Um, and then a systematic uh, review of 17 studies um, kind of went through it in a different way, looking at the Hoogland criteria. And um, it showed about, a, it was like one to 2% for like the traditional criteria of all four. But if you look at luteal phase deficiency possibility, um, there could be, um, there's certainly ovarian activity with a, with a dominant um, follicle that's produced and estrogen that is, that is supported, um, but not an not a, a, a insufficient progesterone in about 30% of the cycles. So the key there then, um, if you really wanted to look into it would be, which, they, which most of the studies don't do, is, is was there an LH surge? And that was not done with these studies. So, um, however, it would say if there was an embryo that was produced, there would be an inadequate progesterone for these cycles to support that pregnancy. So the conclusion of this is basically we need to do more studies into ovulation rates for um, oral contraceptives. And I would argue um, for typical use of oral contraceptives because we know that the typical use is uh, failure, failure rate for pregnancy is like four to 9%. So clearly, clearly ovulation is taking place and more than, I mean, not every egg that is ovulated is going to get um, fertilized. So, um, so that's kind of the conclusion that I drew from that paper as well. Those um, studies, I'm sorry, those yeah. studies were typical use of those studies were research criteria. Uh, they didn't, sorry, say that again. These studies looking at women that were in research groups that were monitored very closely, or were these studies? These are systematic. Typical. Uh, I don't think these. I think these were all in, in research, but I'd have to go back and look at that and this and the methodology of those two systematic reviews, um, and what they like included and didn't include in their in their in their research. But I found it to be interesting. Um, I I think I would. I think. I think just based on having read the papers that I, this data for ovulation would strike me as reasonable um, based on what kind of they, they came up with. I was a little bit surprised at how high the ovulation rate was with progestin only. Um, and yet at the same time, we do know that there's a reasonable failure rate for that too, especially if she misses a dose even by just a few hours, which means that her, her graphene follicle was like ready, ready to go the minute that that LH surge was no longer suppressed by the progestin. So, um, yeah, but, but somewhere between 1.1 and 4.6, I think. And I, I, I don't think that was typical use. I think that was research-based. Um, emergency contraception, uh, plan B. Um, this again is just kind of taken from the, specifically from the data. Um, it's believed to act as an emergency contraceptive primarily by preventing ovulation or fertilization. Um, so they don't really tell you one way, you know, uh, 
or the other, but you know, by altering tubal transport of the sperm or ova. Uh, in addition, it may inhibit implantation by altering the endometrium, and it's not effective once the process of implantation has begun. And there's a, um, a lot of debate about uh, Plan B as to whether and how it suppresses ovulation and whether it's effective or not. Um, it is a fairly high dose of levonorgestrel. Um, however, um, if, if you look at some of the sources down there, I, I wasn't even really able to come up with a conclusive data as to how often ovulation is taking place with these, um, except to say probably it's a par like a fairly poor anovulant for most of the late follicular phase. But I think a lot, if someone were interested, which nobody is, in studying this more, you would be able to kind of tell more about what is the chances of ovulation. And of course, it's given um, outside of Catholic health systems, it's kind of given whenever. It's, it, no one's timing it based on their ovulation, right? They're just saying, oh, you, you, you know, either, either she just doesn't want to get pregnant or she was raped or something like that, and she, she's just given that. So um, Eulipristol, I don't think is as common. Um, I don't know if you guys are using it here or if you've seen it used at all. Um, I have I have a lot of concerns with it um, in terms of its mechanism of action, um, and I have some concerns with with Plan B as well. But um, what is stated is that its mechanism of action varies based on the time of administration. When it's given before ovulation, it does tend to delay or inhibit ovulation, and administration in the early early luteal phase may decrease endometrial thickness and affect implantation of a fertilized egg or a blastocyst. So. Here was um, an interesting table of kind of a side-by-side, -side, and I mostly was just pulling this for the Eulipristol uh, Ella, um, where it talks about it prevents or suspends ovulation by binding to the progesterone receptor, and it affects endometrium and implantation. So it's fairly clear, at least from this, um, from this paper, that that is really its primary mechanism of action as opposed to ovulation. Um, and then for levonorgestrel, I'm not even sure what this means. Prevents ovulation by modifying the pathway of sperm. Um, and I suspect that was a typo, but I am not sure. And it affects the endometrium and implantation potentially. So that's, a, that's what this paper said. Um, again, I think there's a lot of debate and you will see a lot of debate, particularly around plan B to the mechanism of action of that. Um, and various people will take different conclusions on that. Um, and this was something interesting as a review article uh, for pharmacists that the mechanism of action of Ella um, in human ovarian and endometrial tissue is identical to that of its parent compound, mifepristone, which is the first of the two abortion pills. So unlike mifepristone, which is primarily provided by clinics and physician offices, um, Ella will be available by prescription. And now that's not true anymore because mifepristone is off the REMS list, so anyone can kind of get that um, regardless. Um, so the European Medicines Agency states that it is uh, embryo lethal. However, only limited safety and reproductive toxicology studies have been performed with it, um, despite da -da 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 requirements. Nevertheless, the results from the existing studies in animals are instructive in terms of the potential abortive effects of the drug in humans. And it kind of goes along with that looking at monkeys. So could this potentially be used as an abortifacient? I think, I think you certainly could make that argument. So um, I think that it is, since it is quite similar to methadone. Um, so moving along to DEFO. Um, so uh, looking at this for ovulation, um, I do think this is probably fairly anovulatory. 
Um, and But the ovulation studies that I was looking at, it was really done based on progesterone values um, as well as um, estrogen and estradiol values. So I don't know how strong their, you know, Hoogland criteria were, um, but I do, I suspect based on just those two hormones alone that it was fairly anovulatory. And uh, of course it does have other effects on fallopian tube, cervix and endometrium. So Depo caused the endometrium to become atrophic with small straight endometrial glands, deciduous zystroma, um, and the cervical mucus remains thick and viscid. Uh, it's a very effective form of con contraception because of its multiple mechanisms of action and its slow release into the circulation. So we do know that if it's given uh, you know, every three months that it is gonna be fairly effective as a method. Um, so moving on to Nexplanon, um, is also, I think, likely anovulatory, uh, sort of based on some of the, the data that I was looking at, um, and, um, in terms of its, um, uh, LH surges being prevented. Um, however, there was still follicular growth, uh, there was still, um, estradiol synthesis and, uh, FSH serum concentrations were only slightly lower than pre-insertion levels. Um, the viscosity of cervical mucus was increased, um, endometrium was thin, was thin, but they said it was not atrophic, and it showed primarily inactive or weak proliferation, um, which again would not be um, capable of supporting an embryo um, because of the state that it's in. Um, and then ovulation returned fairly rapidly after the removal. So... Sorry, those last two, I'm real careful to point out there's a length of use effect. So when you look at them the first month after they've been started or injected, there's much more of a risk of ovulation happening than the second and subsequent months. Yeah. So I always tell my patients, make sure you use some kind of a backup method that first month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and then for Mirena um, or for uh, IUDs in general, so there's you know a handful that are on the market here in the U.S. There's probably others that are overseas. Um, all of the ones in the U.S. use levonorgestrel. I think there's some uh, other progestin IUDs in other countries, but I'm not 100% sure. Marina has the highest dose, and then the other ones, um, I guess Lolita does as well, but I've never, I've never seen that used. I don't know if you guys are using that here. Um, and then there's um, Skyla and Kylina, which have lower doses um, that are, you know, released per day of the levonorgestrel. So that's all just to say different you know, different, different uh, lengths of time and different uses uh, for those different, different methods. Um, and IUDs and, and uh, levonorgestrel IUDs in general are not uh, anovulatory, so they do likely have uh, reasonable ovulations associated with them. This is directly from the package insert from Marina. It didn't say exactly how ovulation was determined, um, but in the one-year study, 45% of the menstrual cycles were ovulatory. In another study, after four years, 75% were ovulatory. Um, and um, so in, in general, um, most of the cycles will be ovulatory, although not all, and it, and it decreases or it increases over time in terms of ovulation return. Uh, Kylina, um, lower, again, it's a lower dose, and maybe that is what's having the effect, but uh, in the first year, 23 out of 26 women uh, were uh, ovulatory, and I have the, the way that ovulation was determined above. And the second year was 19 out of 20, and then um, all 16 women that remained in the study after the third year uh, were uh, um, were ovulating. So and that was that was true. And then fourth year evidence of ovulation was observed uh, in the one woman remaining in, the, in that particular subset, and then in the middle. So basically, saying it doesn't stop ovulation, which I think you guys already knew. So. Um, 
Moving along, uh, cervical fluid thickening. So cervical fluid, um, because I'm trained in some of the cervical fluid methods of natural family planning, um, I find it to be really fascinating. So I think it's 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 a fun thing to study if you're ever interested in it. Um, there's two types of cervical fluid. There's type E for estrogen and type G for progesterone. Um, I don't know why they didn't say type P, but maybe they thought that would sound weird early. <laughs> But it was type And so this was discovered, I think, in the 1950s. And that's when um, the two doctors, Billings in Australia, started working on their method, the Billings method, along with um, Dr. Hilgers at Creighton University. Um, and they were working together initially, and then they kind of divided and, and did slightly different things with their methods, but um, always looking at this. And so um, fertile, like fertile cervical fluid is under the influence of estradiol. So in that late follicular phase, and it's very stretchy, it's very thin. So if you look at it under a microscope, it actually really does look like this. And if you were to like take it and stretch it, you'd be able to see that it would like stretch, right? So if you were just to imagine like grabbing here and here, you could see that that would stretch. And so it actually is quite stretchy um, and liquidy and clear, and it forms these channels for sperm to go up and to capacitate and et cetera. Um, uh, cervical fluid under the influence of progestins um, does form a semi-impermeable barrier. Um, it may not fill the entire cervix, but hopefully it would. Um, and uh, it also forms a barrier to like bacteria and other things as well. And then it also has like cytokines and natural killer cells and other things in there to kind of basically form, again, that barrier that you hope that is uh, formed there. That may not be true for every woman, like if she's had a leave or, you know, as an STI or something like that, there could be alterations that would affect um, the effectiveness of that barrier. But uh, in general, it will stay there. It will stay up in the cervix as, as opposed to fertile cervical fluid, woman can actually track and notice. Um, so that's when women are tracking their ovulation, they're actually tracking that cervical fluid that they can actually notice because it's, it's watery, it's stretchy, it's clear, and it actually leaves the cervix and actually exits the vagina. Um, so, um, the problem, there, there's some challenges with this. There, there are a handful of studies. So everyone agrees that under the influence of progestins that um, cervical fluid is thickened and it forms this barrier. But in terms of studying it for contraceptive purposes, it's actually, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's few and far between um, in terms of that. And, and part of it has to do with being able to retrieve sperm um, after intercourse in a way that you're, because you're still having to go through the cervix to this so it's just it's just technically quite difficult to do, um, as well as like even just retrieving like fertilized, you know, embryos or or you know pre-implantation blastocysts. Um, that is actually quite difficult to do as well. So there have been challenges with it, um, and there's unclear standards for how to quantify uh, cervical fluid uh, viscosity um, in terms of you know what what would what would that be that would create an effective barrier. And how would you measure that? So that's that's been some of the challenges with it. Um, the other challenge from some of the studies, and it's mentioned in, um, I found that the third one on here, temporal changes, to be probably one of the more interesting ones. Um, but the problem is, and they mentioned this in their in their results, is that cervical fluid wasn't studied at the time of ovulation or the late follicular phase. So if it's not, it was just studied immediately after implantation of the um, the IUD, basically in an emergency. Uh, using, using it as an emergency uh, contraceptive. So the problem with that is you don't necessarily, she's only going to have fertile cervical fluid during the follicular phase. So she's not going to have it anyways afterwards. So how are you going to necessarily know um, how effective 
that method would be in the situation where she's actually producing estrogen that which is actually acting on the cervix. And that's something that I think has been sort of neglected in some of the studies. Um, and so there are conflicting results. Um, it does thicken the, the fluid. There are some studies that show sperm did not get through, so <coughs> it probably did. It's pretty unclear uh, in terms of, and, and it's also unclear in terms of the, a lot of people will talk about the hostility factors. So copper IUDs are quite hostile to everything, uh, it seems like, both sperm, blastocysts, everything. Um, but it's also quite difficult to measure that hostility Again, with trying to retrieve sperm after intercourse or after um, potentially like artificial insemination or something like that, and be able to measure how effective are those sperm at being reproductive in after they have been in the environment of the uterus. So there are some reasons why we're not entirely sure why contraception or is being able to proportionate like which method or which mechanism of action is most likely, and it's because of some of these technical difficulties. Um, fallopian tube motility, um, and um, I just mentioned this here, fertilization, I think, generally takes place um, somewhere in the uh, infundibulum um, or shortly thereafter, uh, but the majority of, of cilia and the majority of movement of anything really is in that ampulla, which is where ectopic pregnancies um, occur, and so the progestins do slow the motility, the, the, the of the, of the cilia and certainly do have an impact, I think, on the uh, infundibulum, but they also have a significant impact on that ampulla. Um, and that does, um, is likely contributing to the ectopic rate that is slightly higher for progestin-based uh, methods of, of contraception. Um, you could also use that for the IUD efficacy rates. Sorry. Ectopic pregnancy rates, you can also look at the rate of ectopic yeah. pregnancies in IUD patients. Yeah, and we, that, that is this slide here. So, <clears throat> so yeah, so the, the total number of ectopics is going to be lower if you're using a method because you're just not getting pregnant, right? So total number is going to decrease. The question is the percentage of ectopic uh, pregnancies. And so it's shown here, um, I think, um, so let me just kind of go through it. So you have kind of your no contraceptive method or your um, no condom use. So that's going to be sort of maybe your natural rate of ectopic pregnancies. Um, and then underneath that, you have your levonorgestrel, so that's your marina and your other methods there, which has the highest rate of uh, percentage of ectopic pregnancies, followed by the copper IUD. Um, and um, again, I think it's because of that just highly inflammatory response that just uh, creates such a hostile environment throughout the entire you know, reproductive tract there. Implant and, um, and depo don't really uh, see an increase in ectopic pregnancies. And, and to me, I believe that this is just because there's such powerful anovulants that you're, you're really not getting to the point of having um, ectopics with those. Um, although you would think that they would act on the cilia because they are progestins as well. Um, and then you have um, some with, you know, some percentage there with um, anything that has a low dose progestin which is your oral contraceptives, your patches, and your vaginal rings. So anyways, it's kind of an indirect marker for is it, what is the effect, like is the effectiveness of fallopian tube cilia based on the slowing of the ovum or is it the slowing of the zygote or, or blastocyst? And I think from this data, you would say it, it at least is certainly both. And the majority of the cilia is going to be in the ampulla. 
Um, so last but not least, um, if you guys can stay with me a little bit longer, um, I am getting close to the end. So um, endometrial atrophy. Um, so the, the key here is um, the length of time of a progestin and how long it's acting on that endometrium. Um, because we know that natural progesterone is actually important for the luteal phase. But the progestins that stay there over time actually obviously do change the endometrial and they, you know, as we often, or at least the way I was taught to counsel patients is stabilize it. They stabilize the endometrial lining um, because you are reducing that mitotic rate and that proliferation phase from the estrogen. And you're kind of just maintaining a stable um, lining of that, which is usually thinner um, than it would be obviously with the fluctuations that would come with natural fertility. Um, and so you have the pseudo decidualization, inhibited glandular cell hostility to implantation from a variety of ways. Uh, so progestins also have, you know, other, um, you know, em embryo toxic uh, effects to the embryo if they're maintained over time um, and um, some of the like cytokine response to the endometrium. Um, so as we know, menses will cease um, in some IUD users. Um, and again, it's kind of a dose dependent rate there. Um, and as well as in the next monad and in Ducal Provera, if a woman continues to use it. And there's unpredictable bleeding in a lot, uh, especially in that first year um, for LARCs, uh, for depo. And um, we do know a lot of women are, uh, because of abnormal uterine bleeding, will change methods or, or you know, have issues with their bleeding. Um, and then menses are lighter for most users of progesterone-containing contraception for, for the majority of women. Um, you know, that's why they're often used for um, you know, heavy, heavy uterine bleeding or um, anemia, uh, you know, due to menses. And so this one, um, the most striking response to endometrium exposed to progestin-releasing IUDs is the occurrence of these dilated, thin-walled vesicles uh, associated with the thinning of the surface uh, epithelium and deciduous reaction of the stroma. A uniform suppression of the endometrium in progesterone IUD users is always found after six months of treatment, uh, whereas insertion of IUDs releasing 20 to 30 micrograms of levonorgestrel induces a profound uniform suppression of the functional endometrium after only four weeks. So the longer you have it in, the more likely you're kind of going to get to that point of having this, you know, uniform suppression throughout the entire, um, the entirety of the, of the endometrial lining. Um, so some people have studied, um, again, statistically based, um, the uh, number of post-fertilization losses per woman per year um, based on Again, statistics and clinical data um, combined, and what that number might be specifically for, I, for, for IUD users. So an inert IUD, which we're really not uh, you know, using, um, but um, has that data um, in terms of how often would you have a fertilization, and then what number could you specifically attribute to the IUD um, as a low estimate and as a high estimate, and then for copper, and then for levonorgestrel. And um, so essentially what this is showing is um, say that we take that last um, levonorgestrel um, intrauterine device system um, that you're gonna have um, between um, 0.67 up to 1.82 um, post-fertilization losses per woman per year based on this IUD. So for some women, that might be very, very low, and that's not going to trouble them. For other women, that might be something that they want to think about. You know, that I might, you know, one time per year might be having a um, 
a post-fertilization event specifically due to my IUD. Other, other, other uh, patients may not have a difficulty with that. Uh, I think this is the second to last slide here, um, kind of a, a slide that I think has been subsequently updated, but I liked the presentation of it. It's hard to find all of the uh, typical use versus perfect use, um, you know, failure rates for pregnancies based on the, you know, the uh, uh, CDC data of the, of the failure rates on there. Um, but just as a reminder that um, if, uh, even in perfect use, if fertilization and implantation is taking place, we certainly know that all the methods have, the, have, a, have a particular failure rate. And, um, and then if we backtrack from that, we know that there's a natural rate of loss of some, of some level um, that is happening on all women that are having, that are not using any sort of uh, method. So presumably those would also be if women are using some sort of method. And then on top of that, to what degree could we say that the particular method is resulting in post-fertilization losses is difficult um, because all of that is kind of combining into this failure rate. Um, if, you, if you call it that, some people don't like the term failure rate, but, um, but that is just something just to consider on there. Um, if you're interested in learning more or looking at it more, there's also a committee opinion from APLOG. APLOG does not take a position on contraceptives, but does talk about the embryocidal potential of them. It kind of reviews through some of the data as well. Some of my data is pulled from that. A lot of my data is not, but you're certainly welcome to go and look at that. And it also has some of the other methods like copper, IUDs, vaginal rings, and patches, and some of the other things. So if you're interested. So in terms of the ethics of, of uncertainty, now that we've kind of gone through the, all the science and we're back to, well, it probably happens sometime, but we don't know how often it happens. Um, what do we do with that? Um, and what is the uh, what probability of early pregnancy loss is acceptable and why? Um, and does potentially lowering the risk of unplanned pregnancy or the potential uh, subsequent abortion justified by prescribing? And I think these are all questions that we're going to come to different answers with in terms of how we sort through that and sort through that data. Um, I like to use the principle of double effect, um, but not everyone uses that um, in terms of how they sort of approach um, whether, you know, like what probability is acceptable and what probability is not. Um, and, um, and I just put on here, so I don't know if you've ever looked at the principle of double effect in any detail, but there's actually like five parts to it, um, which is very helpful. It's not just like, what is my intention? Well, my intention is good and I don't really desire the bad, so therefore it's okay. There's, there's actually more to sort of sorting through how you think about it. So the act itself must be morally good or at least neutral. The agent cannot intend the bad effect, but might foresee it. Um, and if he could attain the good effect without the bad effect, he would do so. And the good effect must be directly produced by the action and not, um, and not by the bad effect itself, um, because we don't want to um, use, you know, have a, a bad means to justify a good end. We don't agree with that. The good effect must be sufficiently desirable and must be proportionate to compensate for the bad effect, and there's no lesser options available. Um, and so as you kind of sort through that, as you sort of think through what do I do with this information and where do I kind of go from here in terms of how do I approach my patients? How do I inform, you know, approach informed consent? Um, I think that is um, just another way of kind of looking at it. So, um, and um, this was one uh, paper that was talking specifically about informed consent. Obviously there's informed consent for side effects, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not kind of going into all of the, the other things that you need to talk about with contraception, but what is the place for informed consent of post-fertilization effects? 
Um, and one, this is just kind of what these, so um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Laramore, he's actually a uh, CMBA um, physician, pretty involved with the CMBA. So um, he is a known name um, and, uh, uh, and one of the authors of this paper. So one possible approach to this complex issue might be to inquire of the patient whether she desires this information. The physician or the provider might say, for example, most of the time, the pill acts by preventing an egg from forming. This prevents pregnancy. However, women on the pill can still sometimes get pregnant. And some doctors think that the pill may cause losses of some of these pregnancies very early in pregnancy, before you might even know that you were pregnant. Would knowing more about this possibility be important to you in your decision about whether to use the pill? So a woman that's already had abortions, she, she might not really care that much about this information for um, a woman that um, you know, might, might have a different view about when life begins, she might care a lot about this. I know if it were me, I would care a lot about this if I, um, you know, if, if that were something that I were looking at, um, whether or not I would accept something. So that's just something just to consider as you process through. I would recommend if you're interested, read the paper. I think that it, it can be, um, it just can be an interesting just to kind of think through that. Um, and there are some of us, myself included, that, that actually don't prescribe contraception. Um, because the, the, the risk of that post-fertilization effect, I think, is something that would weigh on my conscience and something that I'm, I'm not comfortable doing. Um, but others in this room will feel differently about it. And um, at least I think it's important to have that conversation with your patient about informed consent with this. Um, last couple of things I did bring, again, show and tell, Target Africa, if you're interested in reading it, you can certainly um, pick it up from Amazon, or if you really want a copy, you can borrow my copy or keep my coffee if you're interested and pass it around. Um, I don't agree with everything that she says, but um, it, it really kind of opened my eyes um, to the, uh, this, what she calls uh, ideological neo-colonialization neo of um, trying to push uh, contraceptives as well as abortion on um, various uh, other countries that have different ideas about fertility and the importance of fertility. Um, a lot of uh, funding specifically for Africa, but for other places, for other humanitarian work, um, uh, countries have to meet quotas, family planning quotas. And so, if they're you know if they're above a certain rate of you know four children per woman or whatever, they're above that rate, they're going to get less international funding um, through all the different UN organizations as well as USAID um, because they haven't met their their population quota. Um, and so, and then there are other NGOs like Marie Stopes International and Planned Parenthood International and some of the other other organizations that are trying to meet this unmet need of the UN Population Fund. And um, I've talked to several people that worked in various mission hospitals and they said, basically we get all of our contraceptives, our LARCs and other things um, from these organizations that we know do a lot of abortions, um, and, but we don't really have the option. And so that's something that if you guys do go into missions, you need to at least think through, how am I gonna process that? How am I gonna think through this cooperation with this organization? On the flip side, these organizations often will use that to build goodwill with the government because they're helping them meet their unmet, you know, need for population funds so that they can get their humanitarian aid. And then they say, oh, by the way, we also want to do abortions in your country. And that's actually how they've been able to get into a number of different African countries. Um, and so she talks about that in this book here. It's a Nigerian woman um, who's been very active in the, in the pro-life world. And so um, I've, I've talked to several people in Papua New Guinea and several other places where they are getting their, their you know, IUDs and other, and other forms of family planning from these organizations. So if you do go into missions, I just encourage you that that is a conversation you really need to have 
uh, with others and in prayer before you kind of partner with some of these organizations that are explicitly using this to promote abortion in these countries. Um, and of course, we all care uh, loudly about maternal health and so do women around the world. And so that is something that we can certainly all come together on. So um, that is the end of that. I think the last thing, if you're interested in learning more about fertility awareness, I didn't talk about it much, but if you're interested in looking at the efficacy rates for both um, perfect use and for typical use, I have some information about that from an organization called FACTS, which I'm a speaker for. And they have electives. So a number of our residents actually do their two-week elective. It's an online elective through, um, through Georgetown. And so you can learn about all the different um, methods of natural family planning if you are interested. A lot of, I've even had, um, We've had residents that have taken it that uh, do prescribe contraception, but it's really helpful for achieving pregnancy as well, especially for like underserved populations where you don't necessarily have access to like uh, reproductive. So, um, women that are using their fertility markers to achieve pregnancy actually can get pregnant a lot easier, and you can diagnose things, you can treat things with you know, luteal phase progesterone and other things a lot easier if if a woman can start learning how to track. So if you're interested in learning about that, there is um, information about the electives here. And then the last two things I wanna share um, kind of talks about this um, issue of family planning in medical missions and in the global church. Um, there's two articles here from uh, the school at Trinity in Deerfield um, that just talk about um, should evangelical Christian organizations support international family planning, bioethics in the global church and family planning. And then there was one other one as well that but if you're interested, um, those are free online and I can give you these copies and you can find them as well. So questions about that? Hopefully that was interesting. And I think those articles are the ones that we linked in the, okay. in the invitation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of information, but you can go back and look at it later and you can like cross check all of my sources and see anything new or find anything else. I love learning about it. So. 20-year-old uh, college student from ORU that came in. Uh, her mother and either her aunt or her grandmother both had died from ovarian cancer. And she's not married and not active at all, but wanted to be on birth control pills because she <clears throat> had done her research and showed that between 30 and 50% of a reduction in her risk for ovarian cancer um, from being on birth control pills for unless she wanted to have a baby. How do you, how would you approach that from a moral and ethical point of view? Yeah. Well, so I don't have a problem um, prescribing for women, certainly that, that are not sexually active and don't have a risk of that post-fertilization effect. If there's a medical benefit for something, um, there's medical benefits to IUDs for women that have heavy bleeding or whatever. The, the ovarian, so, I mean, for her, obviously, she needs to get BRCA, I mean, she needs to get the whole kind of workup for all of that as well. Um, and there are, yeah. So she was talking yeah. about using it now, but then getting married and continually using it yeah. throughout her pregnancy. So, so, you know, I'm kind of weighing now, it's fine. Then, yeah, because we're starting her on something that. She would continue on. Yeah, I would have I would have difficulty with that. Um, I do understand that that there is a risk reduction for that, and and especially if she has uh, genuine elevated risk for um, uh, for ovarian cancer, primarily you know going to be in the fallopian tubes as a as an origin for that. 
Um, and we don't have great screening for it. So I think that's one of the really difficult pieces. I, I probably still wouldn't prescribe in that situation once she, certainly once she's sexually active, um, because I think that that would be concerning for me, but you could make a double effect argument with that, I think. Um, and, and, I, and I know some people that would. I think I would, I would feel, certainly before she is sexually active, that would be a different, a different question to have. And of course she needs all of her screenings and she might be one that, you know, um, you kind of want to have that conversation with her and you may want to have your, your kids sooner rather than later and then do a bilateral sub-injectomy at some point. Over. Um, so. Thank you.